Since the beginning, we have needed rescue. Then God became flesh and blood. Dying on the cross and defeating the grave so that we may be saved. This is the fifth Sunday of Easter and the fifth and final week of our current message series for the season of Easter. We've been calling this series Victory because Easter celebrates victory. Jesus' victory, his win over death as well as our redemption. As we've seen, redemption is compensation. It's compensation for faults or failures of something or someone. We use the word redeemed when an experience was difficult or disappointing, but then turns out all right in the end. A good outcome, a happy ending, a great reversal can make up for a whole lot of difficulties or disappointments. In our heart of hearts, we all want to be redeemed because we know we're not perfect. Sometimes we're far from perfect, and that's a problem because we all want to be liked and loved. We long to be something more than we are now. Throughout history, theologians and philosophers have all taught the same thing. I must do more. I must do more to make me right. I am not now who I could be or should be. I must do more. And as we've already noted, the difficulty with that perspective When the challenge or problem with you is you, then how can you be expected to fix you? Christianity offers another way forward. Because that desire we have in our heart, that desire to be liked and loved, it's not unique to you or me. It's actually given to us by God. And ultimately, it points to a desire to know and love him to be pleasing to the Lord. And that's precisely where Jesus' life, death, and resurrection come in. Jesus lived a perfect life in a way we can't. Each day and every way and every moment of his life, he obeyed his Father in a way we don't. He lived a perfectly life, perfectly pleasing to God, and that put us back in right relationship with God. God accepts his life on our behalf. That's redemption. His victory can redeem us and make our stories success stories. We see this so clearly in the story of the early church. The first friends and followers of Jesus were very flawed individuals, that's for sure. However, Jesus chose them, flaws and all, to lead his church. So over the course of this series, we've taken a closer look each week at a few of those first followers, 
their specific faults and flaws as well as the change and transformation that they experienced as Christ followers. We began a few weeks ago by looking at a fellow named Thomas. Thomas had to overcome pessimism, skepticism, and doubt, and he did, to become the most prolific of all the apostles. Two weeks ago, we discussed Peter, who was redeemed from the seemingly unforgivable sin of betraying Jesus to go on to become the leader of the apostles. Last week, we looked at Paul, whose redemption story is perhaps the most dramatic of all of the apostles. He moves from chief prosecutor of the Christian community to its most influential defender and promoter. As we close out this series, we're going to look at just one other uh, apostle. But as we close out this series, a reminder that if you've missed any or all of this series, you can always catch up online on demand. It's also the place to share a message with family or friends. The fellow we're looking at today is never ever described in a negative way. His character and personality are only shown in an entirely positive light. The others that we've looked at in this series have stories of redemption received. Redemption received. This guy's story casts him more as an agent of redemption, a cooperator of, with redemption. In fact, what makes this guy a kind of hero in the New Testament and definitely someone to emulate is that he seemed to specialize in helping people who appeared to be failures and turning their stories into success stories, the very heart of redemption. This guy developed, empowered, and released others to make an impact in the world for Christ. He's first introduced in the fourth chapter of Acts, and his given name was Joseph. And the first thing we learned about Joseph was his generosity. The church in Jerusalem at that time was in chronic financial need. And at one point, Joseph sold a piece of property that he owned, giving the money to the apostles. In turn, they give him a new name. They dubbed him Barnabas, which translates son of encouragement. His gift encouraged, equipped, and uplifted the whole church. And as a result of his gift, which was given humbly and at just the right time, Barnabas easily won great favor and trust among the leaders of the church. And that favor and trust only grew over time. Well, eventually, Barnabas decides to cash in on that trust. After Paul's conversion to Christianity, which we looked at last week, he came to Jerusalem to try and join the apostles. But they were afraid of him. They didn't believe that he had truly converted, only that he was trying to infiltrate their group and have them all arrested, as he'd been doing before his conversion. Take a look at what happened. Barnabas took charge of Paul and brought him to the apostles, reporting to them how he had seen the Lord and spoken to him. So Barnabas stands up for Paul and vouches for him. You know, whenever we do that, when we recommend someone for a job or position, 
for admission to school, a school or a club, we take a risk. It's our word, it's our reputation, it's our judgment that's on the line. Barnabas takes a chance on Paul because he sees real potential in him. How did it turn out? Well, Paul moved about freely throughout Jerusalem and spoke out and debated in the name of the Lord. Paul's a fighter. He's a debater. He's a passionate firebrand whose preaching sets in motion a firestorm in the church of Jerusalem. So much so that they tried to kill him. The community was murderly frustrated with Paul's efforts. And that might be hyperbole, but even so, the experiment of Paul in leadership in the church failed badly. When the brothers learned of this, they took Paul down to Caesarea and sent him on his way back to Tarsus. In other words, they got the guy out of town as quickly as possible. And it's easy to imagine the disappointment and disapproval they expressed toward Barnabas too. Paul failed in his first attempt to become a Christian leader. But it wasn't just his failure. It was Barnabas' failure too. He'd put his reputation on the line and it seemed, it seemed as if it was misplaced. But despite that setback, the apostles' confidence in Barnabas remained so high that they later make him a leader of a growing community of believers in the city of Antioch in Syria. The Acts of the Apostles goes on to tell us this. When Barnabas arrived and saw the grace of God, he rejoiced and, what does Barnabas do? He encouraged them. He encouraged them to remain faithful to the Lord in firmness of heart, for he was a good man, filled with the Holy Spirit and with faith. Barnabas goes to Antioch and once again, we see him encouraging other Christ followers. He brings an encouragement that they needed at the time to persevere in their faith, despite the dangers of their faith that they experienced from a culture hostile to their faith. And what's the immediate result? A large number of people were added to the Lord. No, encouraging leadership helps things grow. Encouraging leadership helps the church grow. Probably a good point for me to keep in mind. But this is a key theme of Acts. The church grows only and always because it's God's will for it to grow. But it only grows when and where church leaders exercise good leadership. These verses convey a sense of peace and equilibrium among the believers at Antioch, a time of growth and prosperity, so much so that they could actually help other Christian communities financially, which is why Barnabas's next move was so puzzling. Take a look. Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Paul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. You gotta wonder why. Why would he do that? The last time he brought Paul into leadership, it blew up on him. Why risk it again? Well, apparently, Paul, Barnabas still believed in Paul and saw potential, still believed that he could be 
redeemed. So he goes to Tarsus to look for Paul, willing to give him a second chance. Paul responded with enthusiasm and returns to Antioch with Barnabas. And apparently, he learned his lesson because this time the mission was successful. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught great numbers of people. There it is again, church growth, great numbers. This initial effort in Antioch was actually the launching point for a missionary journey Paul and Barnabas undertook to various other cities in that region. Through their preaching and teaching, they would win converts to the faith, select leaders, and establish meeting places for fellowship and the celebration of the Eucharist. These were the very first local community churches, parishes, if you will. This was also the first time Christ followers were called Christians. Paul and Barnabas were a brilliantly effective team and remained so for a number of years. But the point here is that Barnabas was mentoring and encouraging Paul the whole time throughout their missionary activity. And Paul, Paul was growing as a leader. Anyway, the story comes full circle as they return home. They sailed back to Antioch where they'd been commended to the grace of God for the work they had accomplished. And when they arrived, they called the church together and reported what God had done with them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they went back to the church of Antioch to share the good things God was doing through their church. This is actually something we do as a staff here each Monday. We get together and share the good things God did over the past week and weekend at Nativity. We do it to encourage one another for the week ahead. You should try it in your family or with your work team or friends at school. Encourage one another with the good things that are going on. Well, eventually, Paul and Barnabas undertake separate missionary efforts, though despite some disagreements, they remained friends. And when last we leave him in the story, Barnabas is mentoring yet another young disciple with his own spotty track record. His name was John Mark, and you know him. He's the guy who went on to eventually write the Gospel of Mark. Think about that. Barnabas, Barnabas' greatest contribution wasn't even anything he ever did himself. It was the investment and encouragement he made in the lives of others. Without Barnabas, Paul would never have undertaken his missionary activity that introduced Christianity to Europe and Asia. Neither would he have had the inspiration or occasion to write 14 books of the New Testament. And Mark, Mark certainly would never have written the gospel. Fully half of the New Testament would never have been written if not for Barnabas's encouragement. Our greatest contribution to God and one another might not even ever be anything we do directly. In fact, it probably won't be, but our greatest contribution could be 
encouraging one another. It could just come as God uses us as his chosen instrument to redeem others. So, who are you encouraging? Is there someone others have given up on that you can still believe in? Someone who has a spotty track record who could use a second chance even though they don't deserve a second chance. Someone you believe could be a force for good or great things with just a little bit of coaching. Maybe your challenge is simply to change the way you deal with some of your direct reports or neighbors or classmates. Could you make a greater investment in them? Be like Barnabas. Be like Barnabas. Be a son or daughter of encouragement who lifts others up and helps them see all they can be in Christ. Your Redeemer died on the cross and rose from the dead and now lives in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus' death and resurrection gives us a fresh start, a new beginning, proving that our past faults and failures can not only be forgiven, they can be forgotten. They can be redeemed. Thank you.